several, several of our folks have been recruited to be in the uh, choir, so you see some faces not here tonight. They're around church, but that's what they're doing. They have special dispensation to participate. <laughs> Well, there was some conversation about that, James. But I, I, was, I didn't think it was appropriate for us to talk about it here in front of everybody. Anybody else offended? You didn't get it? I'm blessed. You're blessed. Okay. Good. Okay. Tonight we are talking about resurrection. I want to begin at least a little differently than maybe what we have <clears throat> with some of these. I want you to think more in terms of, um, I don't know, you'll get it. I, I want you to think about encountering someone who is not a believer, someone that maybe you have a relationship with that you know well enough to talk to, but how would you go about explaining resurrection to someone that is not a person of faith, maybe not even a person who's been reared in a church environment. Um, so you're having this conversation across the fence in your backyard with your neighbor or across the uh, uh, divider at uh, work in your cubicles or, you know, waiting on the MARTA bus or whatever it may be. Uh, how would you go about doing that? They say, this resurrection thing, you know, I find that kind of absurd. Well, do you know what it is? Well, probably not. So you're going to explain it to them to help them, help them grasp it and hopefully um, be a little bit more open to hearing the gospel. So how would you go about doing that? I mean, you can separate the, what we see from the supernatural because if they believe in a God if they do and that God can do anything miracle wise then he can definitely resurrect right so if they don't believe in a God that's, a, that's even harder I don't know yeah. but I guess I would try to bring that together some commonality okay yeah. alright somebody else take a shot I'm I'm Joe off the street, uh, your friend or your neighbor, and I've just said, you know, I don't get that resurrection stuff. I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me at all. You know, can you help me understand it? What is the resurrection? Well, this is not going well. <laughs> it, might, it might be helpful if you ask them to share what their beliefs are about the resurrection, other than the fact that I don't understand it. I, I don't believe in that hocus-pocus stuff. I don't, I don't believe these people that have seen, you know, does this mean you see a light and, and then you, you, know, you come back, you're dead on the table, and then or you hover over and you look, and then you come back. I, I just don't believe in all that hocus-pocus stuff. That's something concocted in Hollywood. I don't think that's the resurrection you're talking about, is it? Well, I, I don't know. Consider that more near-death experiences. It would be helpful to know exactly what they did believe. 
Which is, well, I just told believe, you what I believe. They may believe in reincarnation, and that's a, that's a miracle in itself. If they believe that, why couldn't they believe the resurrection? And you could go into it. Well, so you if can, you know you, something about their thinking, perhaps. You can pretend they believe anything you want them to believe. <laughs> you make the rules up as you go. I don't care. How would you go about explaining it? So how, how do you counteract that? Um, I don't think we need to counteract it. I think we need to present the gospel and the truth on the authority of the Bible. Okay. That would be the end of it. All right. But I mean, like you were talking a little bit about near-death experiences. Well, I mean, most people out there are just... They're confused by all this religious stuff, and, and that's where they're going, most of them. They don't have a church background. They, you know, when you throw these words out, resurrection sounds like some churchy word or something that's shown up on a movie, you know. And what, what is it, you know? The, the only thing they can associate it with, because it's totally unique, isn't it? It's totally unique. So, I mean, you know, part of the gospel is helping people come to grips with some of these terms. And today, in today's world, people have so, so little, such an insufficient background of terminology. I mean, you really have to start from the, from the beginning. Years ago, I took a mission trip, a team uh, of teenagers. And um, I was determined that they were going to um, learn how to share their faith. So their preparation was to write their testimony and, and had a couple of books for them to read because I wanted them, when they got on the field, we were going to do backyard Bible clubs, and we did those. I wanted them to be able to share their faith. And the year before, we encountered a lot of lost people, and my team was not able to share their faith effectively. So everyone was having to bring them to me to share the gospel with them. I said, okay, we're not going to make that mistake again. So I taught them to share their faith. Well, when we got there this time, we were around people that didn't even know who God was. You know? So, you know, God had another um, laugh at my expense, I guess. You know, I thought I had them prepared, but we were in an environment where these people didn't have any church background. They didn't know the terminology. They didn't know what you were talking about. Who's Jesus? And it's very difficult for us who've been in church a lot to start back at below zero and start trying to bring somebody up to speed on some of these things because they do have to have a basic understanding of some of this terminology if we're going to share the gospel with them, right? Certainly scripture can be a part of that, you know. What do you know about the Bible? You know, do you know anything about it? Well, you know, we believe it's God's word. God's word we believe is is provides us with history but from a very unique perspective from God's perspective where he's revealing to us how he has gone about dealing with the problem that we have which is sin we have a problem as human beings with sin and the evidence is all around us we're born with this this ability and you know you can take them through that but getting to a term like resurrection 
is, um, you know, because it's such a unique event, it's going to be very challenging to explain that to someone. I think I'd start with creation. I mean, you could. You know? You could. That among itself is along the same lines. Right. Well, or death. You can start with death. Everybody has common ground there, right? They know what death is. Well, you know, we're all dying. Do you know anyone who hasn't died? You know, everyone dies. It's, a part, it's as much a part of living as being born is. We, we enter this world and we leave this world. But again, Scripture says, God tells us that that's not the end, that there's more to it than that. Jesus Christ came into this world and he came for a specific purpose because we have sin that problem needs to be resolved and Jesus went to the cross and died to pay a penalty that was owed to God a price uh, a fee that was owed to God because for our sin but he didn't stay dead he died three days to prove that he was dead but he came back to life he came back to life and it's more than being resuscitated, you know, spending 90 minutes in, you know, what was that guy's name? Piper, John, Don Piper? Uh, was, how long was he dead? Was it 90, 90 minutes or 90 seconds? 90 minutes. 90 minutes. Um, that he claims he was dead and he went to heaven, I guess. Um, so, I mean, those are the kind of things they hear about. Those are the kind of things they may have knowledge about. Television shows. That's where they get their theology, you know. Has anyone watched the one that's on uh, now, uh, God Friended Me? No, I've seen it. Have you seen it? I mean, yes. I, I haven't watched it, but I'm assuming I kind of have an idea what the principle is behind it. But um, can, can you read us into that a little bit? Uh, it's uh, kind of related to setting was basically this guy, middle-aged, uh, and his father's a priest or pastor, and the situations they get into, they use basically the phone, the text, he gets basically the... He uh, gets a text from God. He gets a text from right. God about the different situations that are going on in his life, and, and then it kind of plays out. Right. So, I mean, but really he thinks the text is from God or it's supposed to be from God. So what's wrong with that premise for, for, from, from a Christian perspective? I mean... I don't think God uses a phone. Well, he tells us he doesn't, right? He told us this is the closed canon, that this is the scripture, and so he doesn't use a text. That's right. But, but the average person out on the street, this is, what they're, this is where they're getting their information and how they build their worldview and their theology. Uh, if you know, if we want to call it a theology, but their philosophy uh, of life. So we have to be prepared to engage them in some conversation and help them understand what we're talking about with some of the terminology we're using. Just like we had to do with God friended me. Kind of have an idea, you know, Facebook, social media, all that stuff. Okay, playing off of that. I kind of know where it's going, but I still need to know what their terms are. And we need to be able to do the same thing. So... The doctrine of resurrection is, a, is an important uh, dis, uh, discussion for us. It's so critical to the gospel, you know, but because it's unique. Do you have to, in order to have the conversation with someone that's lost, 
be able to speak to them on their level at some point to be able to connect. And then, and then as you speak to them on their level, be able then to introduce, you know, this is what- Well, you're talking about maybe getting to know them some. Yeah, you gotta develop, develop a relationship. Like, like that show, if people can relate to texting, and then it, it brings in the conversation about God and God's presence in your lives, then, okay, so now we're talking about yeah, exactly. You know what I'm saying? If He's you're talking to some, way. if you're talking to someone that's got, that's their understanding of how God operates. Is well, He would send a text. Well, He's never sent me a text. Well, He has. But you, you, yeah, you use that as an avenue. You know, the Bible says, and you can go to places here in the Scripture where God says this is His word. This is this is His message. You know, mm -hmm. God's not using technology that we have today. He's using this book that has stood the test of time and has been examined and vetted and and has proven itself to be used in a supernatural way in people's lives that it this is God's revelation to us not through some piece of technology okay so you're right you got to find a way to connect with them and that's what I'm getting at with resurrection is how do you how do you connect with people with something that you know sounds so absurd to the rational unbeliever out there mm -hmm. you know that's and I think that's important for us so as we move through this let's let's try to think in those terms and maybe some of this will fall into place for you and you know ultimately our responsibility is to make Christ known right to communicate the gospel to them but if we if we don't put it in terms where they can understand it you know we do want to trust God and believe God is going to ultimately make the connection but he's also called us to give understanding to what he's written here and apply it to people's lives so that those opportunities um, are there for them to believe. Resurrection. If you're going to give it a definition, Grudem says the resurrection was the event. Uh, no, I'm sorry, this is not Grudem. This is uh, uh, Herman Bavink. Says the resurrection was the event in which Christ, by his divine power, revived his dead body, united it with his soul, and thus left the tomb. Or the grave. <clears throat> the word resurrection comes from the Greek word anastasis, which means a standing up, a raising up, a rising. And in most places in Scripture, this word is used without um, kind of a qualifier, which is of the dead, resurrection of the dead. But of the dead, since it's uh, often omit, omitted, but when it's added, it proves that, this, uh, that in death Jesus belonged among the dead, so he was actually dead, and at his resurrection returned from that domain to the land of the living. That's something that is not an everyday occurrence, right? Even though we'd like to think it is. We're infatuated with, um, you know, trying to maintain our youthfulness, trying to ward off aging and death. Our culture's uh, fascinated with this stuff. It, it's consumed with it. Uh, Hollywood, the celebrities, they perpetuate this. Television, modeling, all those industries, you know, where reality is not real at all, is it? It's, uh, it's fantasy world. And, and so 
Everybody has been fascinated with this concept all along. So this is not a topic that's going to be, you know, off, off limits for anybody you want to talk to. Once you learn where, where their connection point is. I mean, resurrection, living forever, you know. What Scripture tells us and what we'll look at a little bit is that resurrection come, carries with it an idea of being restored to a, a vitality, um, a vibrancy, a peak of life that's that never diminishes. So let's uh, let's dig into it a little bit. The nature of Christ's resurrection. First of all, it is not resuscitation. What's resuscitation? Give me an example of resuscitation. Lazarus, Lazarus was resuscitation. Even though he'd been dead four days, Jesus spoke and he came back to life. Why was it just res why was it not resurrection? He died again. He came back in the same form that he was before he died. He had he had a body that was weak, that was vulnerable to deterioration, to disease, to weakness, and he died again. So it's just resuscitation. Resurrection is totally different. And that when someone is resurrected, the what comprises that body is completely different. You know, it is immortal, incorruptible, no disease, no weakness, no chance of it ever deteriorating again. You know, we talked, I think it was Sunday, about when God made Adam and Eve leave the Garden of Eden and he, he closed the garden and guarded it behind them because... It was one thing to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and have the understanding of what sin is, you know, and to be rebellious. But the other tree there in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. Had they eaten that tree, which gave them everlasting life, then they would have been set in that fallen condition forever. That's, you know, that's eternal, that's hell, that's the judgment. <clears throat> so God separated them from that, guarded them from that until until we could um, be transformed, until we could be regenerated, and therefore be returned to what God intended us to be in Christ. Resuscitation means that the body is susceptible to weakness, sickness, decay, and death. A renewed or resurrected body that does not die again. Uh, scripture gives us some pictures of that. Let's see. Sam, if you'll look up 1 Corinthians 15... And I'm going to ask you to read verses 35 through 44. 35 through 44. A lot of pressure there with nine verses. Okay? What language would you like that? Uh, could you read that in Greek? <laughs> That's what it's and say. then give us an interpretation since you'll be speaking in the tongues. Uh, Bill, if you'll look up 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Um, Dan Daniel, if you'll do Matthew 28, 9. Audrey, you want one? Luke 24, 30, and 39. 24, 30, and 39. All of my verses again. Uh, chapter, oh, no. chapter 15, yeah. verse 35 through 44. Right. Okay. Uh, Steve, if you'll do John 20, verse 15, and verse 27. Um, let's see. All right, we'll hold it right there for now. Okay, Sam. Someone may ask, how are the dead raised? 
with what kind of body will they come? How foolish. How, what, you do, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be just as a seed perhaps of wheat or something else, but God gives a, a body as he is determined. And, he, and to each kind of seed, he gives his own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another. Birds have another, fish have another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun is one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another. The stars different from, differs from star and splendor. So it will be when the resurrection of the dead. The body uh, that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown... Uh, it is shown of a bo natural body, it is raised uh, a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. All right, he's using an analogy here, an analogy of a seed. You know, if you take, um, if you go to the, uh, the local hardware or feed and seed or farm supply or something, you're going to find um, little packages of, of seeds there, right? You know, might be okra, might be for um, what else? Corn, uh, any number of things, uh, and you'll you'll find the seeds. Now they'll stay. I don't know how long they could stay in those packages. Maybe a long, long time, and nothing ever happens, right? I mean, if you laid them on your counter, you took them out of the bag and laid them on your counter in the kitchen at home and left them there, they just stay like they are, won't they? I mean, there's nothing happens. But we know that if you take those seeds and you go out in the springtime when the weather is going to be prone to have precipitation and the soil is getting warmer, uh, you put those seeds in the soil and the precipitation comes, then something really incredible happens. And what is it? They, they sprout into life, don't they? That, that seed literally dies by being put into the ground. It's buried, and, and the, the shell, the outer covering, begins to uh, deteriorate, uh, rot. And as it does, some miracle takes place inside that seed, and new life sprouts. And that's the picture he's using here for human beings, for the human body, that... We have been created with this physical body and we have been trapped by sin in this condition where our bodies are cursed. We're under a curse. We're living under the curse. And our bodies, everything about us is continually being drawn by the gravity of sin and curse back to the ground, back to the earth from which it came. Those who have put their faith and trust in Christ have, by the Spirit of God, been regenerated on the inside. There's life there. There's life there that's not like what we see right here physically, right? And one day, this body is going to have to be buried. It's going to have to die in order for that life 
to spring forth and be new. And that's what he's describing. He's talking about dying and being resurrected. And he's, he's saying there Jesus was the first fruits of this. Jesus went to the grave, died for us. He paid for our sin, yes, by the shedding of his blood. But through his resurrection, he's also accomplished some other incredible things for us. And he's made a way, he set the course that we're all going to follow. And that is that the body has to die in order for this new life to come, come to be, to be manifest. Bill? But Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first one. You know, when, when you plant um, tomatoes, <clears throat> the one I always go to, uh, uh, you know, next spring I'll be putting out some tomato plants. And well, about 60 days to maturity, right? Nod your head. You know. <laughs> 60 days for tomatoes to mature, right? Yes. You set them out, basically, depending on the weather. But you plant those things, and, you know, they start blooming, and then those little, little green balls appear, and then what happens? They begin to turn red, hopefully, or yellow, as your heart desires, and, and they ripen. And as they ripen and you come out and you pick them, what you know is that that first fruit comes in. There's several things. We're going to enjoy eating that first fruit. You know, it's very enjoyable. But it also alerts us to the fact that there's more to come. Because when you pick it off, you're going to look, you're going to see little buds beginning to form and sun blossoms already and maybe even some more of those. We're going to say, whoa, I got more of these coming. And that's what he says about Jesus' birth. Because we're in him, and we, we look at what he did for us. He died, he paid our sin, he was buried. But on the third day, he came out of the grave. He's the first fruits, and there's many more sons to follow. That's those of us who are in Christ. What he did for himself, he's going to do for us as well. Daniel? All right, uh, 28.9, correct? 19.29? Yes. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Okay, Audrey. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Nine. Nine. This is Jesus speaking to Mary in John 20, verse 15. Jesus says to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And moving down to verse 27. Seven. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So it's not an immaterial resurrection, but a material, a, a physical resurrection. There's there's a lot of people that, that don't believe that. Back, um, it's been several months ago, maybe close, uh, it's not been a year ago. Um, I can't even remember what they're, what they're called now, is it? wasn't the Baha'is. 
Somebody showed up here from some church, wanted us to participate in some sort of anniversary they were having. Um, but it's, you know, it's some um, shoot off of Hinduism. And, um, and so we got into, Luke came in, and there were two of them, and there was us two, and we got into, you know, pretty much a spiritual gymnastics warfare. Um, I was talking to one guy, and Luke was talking to this lady that was with him, and I mean, we were just trying to have a conversation, and they kind of challenged us on some things, so, you know, you don't challenge us. We're going to, you know, we're going to retaliate. Um, but I remember this guy I was talking to, he, he finally stopped, and he said, wait, you believe people are going to physically resurrect? You believe Jesus resurrected physically? And I said, yes, I do. And he said, oh, Jerry, come on. And I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, you know, for us, we just accept it. But for him, it was totally alien to what he believed and what he thought. You know, he thinks, oh, it's a spiritual resurrection. You know, it's a spiritual thing. It can't be physical. You die, this is it, man, this is it. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that it's a physical resurrection, that he, he came back. And there's something that takes place there. You know, Jesus was early, mid-30s when he was crucified. Um, we know that uh, he was not he was not attractive physically. Um, he was made that way on purpose. That was the body that he designed for himself on purpose, lest people be attracted to him because of an outer beauty. Um, but we also know that that he lived a a challenging life. That it was a life of grief and sorrow, and it was a life of suffering. And, and so we know what that does to the human body, right? It, it kind of exacerbates the, the aging process and, you know, the, the, the gravity of the curse, so to speak. But yet, when he came back, we don't know exactly what happened there, but we know that when he rose from the dead that there was something about him that was different because they didn't recognize him at first glance, Okay. In fact, when you read the New Testament, you find out that when he encountered people that had been with him for three or four years, you know, spent a lot of time with him, they only recognized him when he spoke to them, you know, when he called them by name, which goes back to John 10, you know, my sheep know my voice, and, uh, but they didn't recognize him at first, so there's something different about him, and yet we know that there's parts about him that are not different, that he bore the same scars because uh, he had them look at them and feel them. Um, so we don't know how to put all that together. We, we know that the, the body is going to be um, given how God works and that this is a, a restoration, it is a recreation, then we can expect our resurrected bodies are going to be different and that they're going to be vibrant. They're going to be, you know, similar to what they would be at their peak. They'd be you know, stronger. I'm not. I'm not trying to put this in comic book terms. You know, as superheroes, but you know, they're going to be very strong, fit. You know, there, there's not going to be anything wrong with them, and there is going to be some sort of uh, recognizability there, um, because once uh, that occurred, we know that there's there is an ability to recognize and identify uh, each other with it. Uh, but he invited them to touch him. And even at that, so he's physical. He ate with them. He ate fish with them. He prepared a meal with them. 
He's doing these things that are physical. He, he interacted with uh, upwards to 500 people that uh, knew him. And that's why this, uh, this claim of resurrection that the officials, the, the heads of the Romans and the Jewish people couldn't suppress it and keep it down because there were too many witnesses. Okay, So there was too much verification that he had risen. And now the other side of that coin, if you look in John 20, where Steve just read, I'll show you a couple of other things. If you look in verse 19, we go to one of those rooms. Now remember, the disciples, they're petrified still. Jesus has been crucified. Even though they've seen him resurrected, they're, they're still, they're not certain of what's going on. I mean, you can imagine how upsetting this would be, right? I mean... You know, you ever thought you saw a ghost or something, you know, you saw something there a minute and you look back and it's not there. and It's a little scary, right? So, I mean, they're dealing with some real honest emotions like that. Verse 19 of chapter 20 says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they're barricaded in and Jesus came and stood among them. Now, you unite that to what we've just talked about, about them taking his feet, touching his side, feeling the scars, eating a meal with him. They're, they know that he's got this physical body, and yet they're barricaded in this room somewhere. They're barricaded to keep people from getting in, and all of a sudden, Jesus walks in among them. How did he do that? And you say, well, it's... You know, it's another one of those copying errors, right? That's what it is. Well, go down to verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. John makes the point to make this, bring this out twice. Jesus came and stood among them. Same thing, eight days after. What's he telling us? He's saying, we don't have the capability as human beings to understand what this resurrected body is or looks like or anything. There's some similarities to what a person is before they're dead and buried, but it's so much better. There's physical capabilities. This person eats. This person probably has some sort of sensory capacities. This person communicates. This person still feels and yet this person can pass through solid walls or doors. <laughs> a bit far-fetched, right? But this is, what, this is what the Word's saying. So stuff that science fiction movies are made of, right? So it's a new body that's incorruptible. It's different, and yet it's the same. It's restored to its youthfulness, vitality, perfect health, strength, um, Paul gives us a description in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. He uses terms like imperishable, in glory, in power. Calls it a spiritual body. Not that it's immaterial, but that it's spiritual in that it's fully spirit-led. You know, it's, it's fully connected as God intended us for to be. You know, Jesus used this terminology in John gospel where he says I and the Father are one if anyone is in us you be one with us 
you know, it blows our little limited minds away. But the, the point is, is that it's going to be pretty special, pretty incredible what God has in plans for us post death, burial, and the resurrection. So it's something that we can anticipate with joy and excitement rather than dread. Most of us, we think about death. We're, we're not fans of death. And most of it, though, is one-sided for us as Christians, I think. It is for me. Is that what am I going to have to go through on this side to cross over? That's what we're a little bit afraid of. We're a little fearful of. But on the other side of it, what Scripture offers us is something of incredible hope and it's thrilling. You know, that what God has, has in store for us. <clears throat> okay. Uh, doctrinal significance of the resurrection. Three things. Uh, the resurrection of Christ ensures our regeneration. Uh, let me give out some more verses. Linda, 1 Peter 1.3. 1 Peter 1.3. Stu, Ephesians 1.19 and 20. Ephesians 1.19 and 20. Um, Shirley, Ken, do you want one? You want to read? Okay, Shirley, would you read uh, Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6? Mary? Okay. Uh, James, Philippians 3, verse 10. Phil? Colossians 3, verse 1. Colossians 3, verse 1. Paul, Romans 4.25, Romans 4.25, Bob, Philippians 2.8.9, Mark, 2 Corinthians 4.14, and Scott, 1 Corinthians 15.58, 1 Corinthians 15.58, okay. First Peter 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Caused us to be born again through what? Living hope through the resurrection <coughs> of Jesus Christ. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Provides our regeneration. Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. Okay. I don't really like where it starts at 19. I'm going to go back to 18. Okay. okay. That's fine. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realm. Is that okay. it? Or 21? No, just 20. 2, 5, and 6. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Okay, I'm going to start with 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. Uh, transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might allow the incomparable 
riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us, Christ Jesus. Okay, Philippians 3.10. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Okay, so you hear that going on. His resurrection has produced for us regeneration. If he doesn't, if he doesn't resurrect, we don't get new life. His death on the cross paid for our sin, yes. So our sin is forgiven, but we don't get a new life without Christ's new life. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, um, Romans 4.25. I'll start with Romans 24, the latter part of it. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification ah so what else does a resurrection ensure justification, justification. okay <clears throat> that God justifies us because Jesus came up so the fact that God raised him from the dead re returned, restored his life he had left him there, there would have been no justification available for us. That is to declare that we are no longer guilty. So his resurrection was the exclamation point on that, the affirmation that God had accepted the payment for our sin and that we are treated in Christ as though we never sinned. We are justified in him, declared just. And God doesn't give a pardon. God declares justification. And that's what makes God God. That's He's right. the only God that's ever resurrected from the dead. That's right. Period. That's right. This is a one-time event. Okay? One-time event. Um, what did I give you, Bob? 2 Corinthians 4.14? No, that's... Uh, Philippians <clears throat> 2, 8, 9. That's right. Uh, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I went on a little further. So Jesus' resurrection is God's declaration that he has approved of the work of redemption that Christ did for us. Okay, uh, Mark, 2 Corinthians 4.14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus bring us with you into his presence. So the resurrection ensures what? Presence to the Father. In the presence of the Father. Our resurrection into his, his eternal presence. So because he's resurrected in Christ, we are resurrected. We will be resurrected. You know, if you can get this mental image in your mind that we are in Christ, when we turn to him in repentance and faith, we are in Christ. So the death that he died has taken care of our sin. His resurrection has guaranteed that we are resurrected and that we're going to serve and reign with him. We are, co we are fellow heirs with him for all of eternity. So if you get in this thing where the devil's working you over, you know, and making you feel guilty about things and beating you up about things, you know, this is what you come back to and rehearse. This is the gospel working out in your life day by day. 
is that I don't have to listen to that because I have the confidence it's no longer my deeds, my works, my failures, my sin that God's going to worry about because when Christ died, Christ died, you wanted him dead, you thought that was the way to win, he died, laid down his life vicariously for me and God has balanced the debt, God's, the, the, the debt has been exhausted through Christ and Christ came up from the dead and because he did, I did. Whatever he's done, I've done in him and it, it goes to my account and, and that is where we find our assurance of salvation that's where we find our security even in our sanctification when we still continue to stumble and fall now that's not a license to sin you know someone who still thinks that's a license to sin then probably doesn't appreciate what Christ has done and may be in danger of not fully grasping it period but you get where I'm going right but that's what we rehearse so when we are in the grips of guilt when we are when we do fail and sin these are the things we rehearse in our hearts and say this doesn't change my standing <clears throat> does Christ's standing change when you go out tomorrow and you lose your cool and you spout off or you say something or you're hateful to your spouse or you know, you sin in some fashion or form. Does that change Jesus standing before the Father? Then it doesn't change yours because you're in Him. Fair enough? Mm -hmm. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay, thinking about the ethical significance of the resurrection, our labor, the things that we engage in are not in vain, but we are inspired to persevere because he was raised and we will be raised. So we shouldn't be weighed down by the things in this life. You know, even the things that are frustrating or not going the way we want them to, we continue to be inspired to persevere because triumph is our destination, right? I mean, we, we've already triumphed, but we're living into triumph. It's the already but not yet, right? Motivation for living. Ethical significance of resurrection gives, a, resurrection gives us motivation for living. From uh, Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on, on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And we are encouraged also in Romans 6 to stop yielding to sin. So it, we don't, you know, Paul said, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? No, we don't do that. We should be inspired not to sin, to seek not to sin because of what Christ has done for us, not the other way around. Does that make sense? All right. I'm going to move quick here. Uh, uh, historicity of Jesus' resurrection, testimony of Scripture eyewitnesses. I have spent a lot of time on this because we've done this a lot on Easter Sundays in the past few years where I have expounded the doctrine of the resurrection from the, the evidence that's in Scripture. You know, 
you can go to every one of the gospel accounts and you can read where um, the resurrection is described in graphic terms, uh, in very real terms. You can go to the Old Testament and find places where the resurrection is referred to. So scripture is continually giving us God's promise, God's projection, God's you know, assurance that this is going to happen. It's a part of his plan for us. Um, the disciples and the gospels, uh, the book of Acts, and, uh, and all the epistles as well, all kind of find uh, opportunities to keep putting that evidence in front of us. Uh, attacks on the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, there are lots of different theories that are put forward trying to uh, discount the physical resurrection of Jesus. There's the stolen body theory, you know, that somebody came in, stole the body, took it away, and hid it. Listen, if somebody went to the trouble, I'll give you the simple way to diffuse that argument. If someone came in and stole the body, one of the enemies of Christ and the gospel stole the body, why, pray tell, did they not produce it later on and put a stop to Christianity? Because they couldn't. You know, there was no body for them to produce. He was resurrected and later ascended back into heaven. If someone stole the body, they would have produced it because that was their objective to silence the resurrection in its reality. And the fact that they didn't tells us that that theory is bogus. The swoon theory that Jesus only seemed dead but that he fainted and that they took him down early off the cross, put him in there, and after a couple of days he revived. Listen, if you read or do any research on the physical ramifications of what Jesus went through in that trial, the suffering, the beatings, and the crucifixion process, you would understand that that one can't be taken seriously either. It's just not possible for someone to take that kind of punishment and then just simply arise in a couple of days and walk away from it. The Islamic view, someone who looked exactly like Jesus died, but not the real Jesus uh, who ascended into heaven. Uh, there's a mythological perspective that advocates that the resurrection was symbolic or just spiritual. It was the result of the disciples wanting to see Christ again, so they kind of made it up. Rudolf Bootmann, who uh, I'll have to go wash my mouth out with soap after this for even mentioning his name, said this. He said, and I quote, the resurrection itself is not an event of past history. All that historical criticism can establish is the fact that the first disciples came to believe in the resurrection. In other words, they made it up. They wanted it to be true, so they convinced themselves it was true, and then they went out and did their business according to that ruse that they were uh, playing on everyone else. I, I heard a guy one time, a, a very uh, fine young man, but he was, uh, he was from way out in the country and just very plain spoken and sitting under um, a friend of mine was in class with him at the seminary and it's one of the seminaries that was under liberal leadership and very liberal le leadership and so Rudolf Bootmann was a hero of the professor and he was talking about it and Bootmann was always running Paul down and questioning Paul's theology and, and the accuracy of his writings and my friend said that they sat there and they would listen to this for an entire class period. And about the end of the class, the young man put his hand up and the professor said, you have a question? He said, well, sort of. He said, I, I don't know this Rudolf Bootmann that you talk about, but I believe if by some slim chance he does make it to heaven, 
that the Apostle Paul is going to punch him dead in the mouth. <laughs> I don't know. I can't, I can't speak to the veracity of that, but I thought it was funny. Rudolf Bootman. Um, the ascension into heaven. We're going to finish this in three minutes. We know that Christ ascended into heaven. We don't know a lot about it, but we do know some things about it. First of all, he ascended to a place. All you got to do is go back and listen to the sermon from Sunday, and you know that, right? That Jesus went, he said, to prepare a place, a place for us and a place for him where we would dwell together. So when he ascended, he went to a place, and he's coming back from that place to receive us, and, um, and we will be forever together um, there. Secondly, he uh, received glory and honor. Uh, you find that in John chapter 17, uh, early in the book of Acts in chapter 2, also in Philippians 2, that uh, he was honored, you know, that the, the Father had him sit and said there's no other name. I mean, uh, what is it? Uh, Philippians 2. Every, every knee shall bow. That's what I'm trying to get to. Uh, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, sometimes this is referred to as Christ's temporary session. And it's, it's a place that he abides in now, but uh, the implications are that he won't forever, that he's returning to gather us together and, uh, and rule over the new creation. There's uh, several um, scripture references for this that uh, you can find in Grudem's book, Psalm 110, Acts 7, Ephesians 1, uh, 20 and 21, that we were around there a few minutes ago. Sometimes um, Christ session at God's right hand. It was a sign of completion of the task given to him. It was also a sign of authority. When you sat at the right hand, that was the position of authority. And so when Jesus sat the Father, his work was finished and he had the authority of God placed upon him. Doctrinal significance for our lives. What? We're in Christ. So we will what? We're going to ascend just like he did. We're going to ascend to be with him forever. And we will also share in that authority, in that same authority, and reign with him. Any questions, comments?